Okay, well, we are headed to Luke chapter 1 again this morning in the second week of our series, Looking for Redemption. In week one, we saw that redemption is possible, and today we're going to see that redemption is promised. And as you turn to Luke chapter 1, uh, let me remind you of our holiday s- schedule. Next Sunday, as we mentioned, we have our special Christmas offering Uh, where we give willingly in consideration of what Jesus has done for us. And then on Wednesday, December 21st, we have our candlelight communion service, and it's at 6.30, so please note the time on that, 6.30 p.m. on December 21st, and then on Christmas Day and New Year's Day, we have one service each Sunday at 11 o'clock, and I hope you'll be present for all of those things. All right, let's read in Luke chapter 1, and today we're going to begin at verse number 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, The Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. You know, Mary and later Joseph were assured of a promise that had been repeatedly told through prophets in ages past. But this promise still came as a major shock to Mary primarily because God had not spoken through a prophet in Israel for over 400 years. Now, let's, let's try to relate this to Western civilization for a second. Let's say that uh, around A.D. 1300, about the time of Marco Polo. You guys ever heard of Marco Polo? You, how many of you at least played Marco Polo? Okay, so uh, Marco Polo, the explorer, Silk Road, AD 300. Uh, also, in that same century, there's a Christian martyr named John Wycliffe. Uh, and uh, let's kind of relate it to that history. So, uh, a prophet in about 1300, sent by God, said that a virgin would have a child and that he would be the anointed one to save mankind from their sins. And then promises regarding Messiah were made again when Gutenberg invented the printing press, 1440. And again, about the time Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You guys remember that year, right? 1492, yeah, you got it. Uh, And then in the 1500s, think uh, Martin Luther and Henry VIII, I am, I am. Uh, The location of Messiah's birth was prophesied. And then in the early 1600s, about the time the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock, one final prophet 
shouted out that a messenger of God is about to appear and prepare the way of the Lord. And then for 400 years, not a word. Not one prophecy, not one reminder, not during the Great Awakening, not during the War of Independence, not when George Washington was president or Abraham Lincoln, not during World War I or II or during the Korean War or the Vietnam conflict, not even into the 21st century. Just silence. Now, if an angel appeared to a young woman in 2022, after that timeline of history, do you think that the young woman would be slightly surprised at his words? Right? That's pretty much how things went during the era in which Gabriel appeared to Mary there in Nazareth of Galilee. I mean, having an angel show up would scare anybody. But having an angel show up after 400 years of silence with these words would be a major shock to the system. And Luke phrased it like this, she was troubled at his saying. Do you think? But, but as Gabriel spoke, the history of prophecy came flooding back into Mary's mind. And we want to give you that scriptural background this morning of things that Mary already knew. And Joseph already knew. And so let's start by talking about the fact that Messiah was promised to a virgin in David's lineage. Messiah was promised to a virgin in David's lineage. Go back with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Yeah, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 7. I want to look at some verses here. Uh, starting in Isaiah chapter 7. And to start verse number 13, Isaiah is just past halfway in the Bible, and it's a pretty big book, so hopefully you see it, and we are here in Isaiah 7, verse number 13. And he said, hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign." Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both of her kings. Now this prophecy uh, is not to the current king, a guy named Ahaz. Uh, Ahaz was not a man of faith. Now, this prophecy is addressed to the entire house of David. It was a continuing prophecy to a specific family. Now, why did Mary so readily exclaim uh, in Luke 1.38, Be it unto me according to thy word. <clears throat> because she knew this prophecy by heart. She had grown up in David's lineage. Think about this. Uh, over 700 years before the angel's appearance to Mary, God had spoken to the house of David through Isaiah the prophet here in this passage. And we read, Behold, a virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Every child in David's line was taught this promise from the time they could talk. And Mary probably couldn't tell you when she had first heard it. 
Uh, she had known about it since she knew about most anything. I heard a great story this week. Uh, Tressa Glasser, Pastor Bryce's wife, was uh, talking with their little boy Kepler the other day. And Kepler is two and a half years old. And they were talking about Jesus. And so out of the blue, she just asked Kepler, who is Jesus, Kepler? And that little fellow looked her dead in the eye, and he said to her, Jesus is God. And she hadn't even taught him that. So she checked with Bryce. He hadn't taught him that either. How does somebody who is 30 months old connect those dots? It's almost like God the Creator is hardwired into our hearts, huh? Uh, little kids know and say the most amazing things. I, I'm sure that uh, as a toddler, little Mary had surprised the entire room by quoting the words of Isaiah's prophecy. Now, sometimes your kids just blow you away because they quote a, a memory verse when they're two or three years old, and sometimes it's a jingle from the radio, right? Or some ad they saw on TV that they can quote verbatim. Uh, it's, it's crazy how kids know all these different things, but she was experiencing the fulfillment of the prophecy as the unnamed version, and, and the promises went even further back than Isaiah. So I want to travel now back to the book of Genesis, chapter 12, uh, where we find that the blessing of Messiah was promised to a descendant of Abraham. So that's our second part today, promise to a descendant of Abraham. And maybe you have heard this passage before, Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse number 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Almost 2,000 years before the angel's appearance to Mary, God had promised Abraham that all families of the earth would be blessed through his nation, pointing directly to the gospel. Uh, God loving and blessing the world so much by giving his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And when this promise was given, 75-year-old Abraham had no children. Uh, in fact, the promised seed, Mr. Isaac, would not arrive for another 25 years to a 100-year-old dad and a 90-year-old mom. And then Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, had twins, Esau and Jacob. Uh, God blessed Jacob, changed his name to Israel. Uh, he would be the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Jacob's entire family ended up down in Egypt, where they were slaves for hundreds of years. We talked about that last Sunday. Uh, until Moses showed up to tell Pharaoh, Hey, God said, let my people go. And when they finally did go, Pharaoh was begging them to leave. They miraculously crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. And, and then they showed such little faith in their deliverer that they got to wander around in the wilderness for the next 40 years. But out in that wilderness on Mount Sinai, God gave Moses 
the law. And from the time of Moses, every Jewish child began to learn the law. Every Jewish child knew God's promise to Abraham by heart. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, the children of faithful Jews taught these promises to their children. Through the time of Joshua and the judges, uh, through the period of the kings and then the exile, through the silent years we mentioned earlier, although God hadn't sent forth any more prophets, there were still some faithful Israelites teaching the promises to their children. One of those was a man named Heli, not Eli, Heli, or Heli. Uh, God blessed him and his wife with a little girl that they named Mary. And little Mary could quote all the Messianic prophecies in Hebrew. Out of thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And through every sunrise and sunset for 2,000 years, God's word had endured. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but God's word never will. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And folks, we are not free to tamper with the scriptures. They didn't come from us, they came from God. We have no liberty to rewrite them or try to adapt them to modern civilization by uh, altering them. And we live in a very confused world today. In fact, it's a world where many Christians seem to be losing their convictions on certain matters, uh, being influenced by the godless perspective of our culture on all sorts of things like euthanasia uh, or abortion or sexuality, adultery, transgenderism. Uh, but let me tell you something. It's bigger than these issues. Uh, Christians aren't losing convictions on specific items here or there, they're actually losing their conviction on the authority of God's Word. And this is the original temptation, the one from Eden itself. Did God really say? And if we lose conviction on the authority of the Bible, we lose our voice. We lose our influence in this culture. And most Israelites had given up on the prophecies. They had given up on the Word of God, and yet Mary was just simple enough to believe that God meant what He said, be it unto me according to thy word. I want you to notice something in the song of Mary. Sometimes it's called the Magnificat. Uh, go back to Luke chapter 1, and uh, let's look at just a portion of this here this morning. It's such a beautiful song. And of course, inspired by God, sung by Mary. But Mary says, my soul doth magnify the Lord, my spirit is rejoiced in God, my Savior. And she's singing how great God is. I want you to work your way down to verse number 54. Look what it says. He hath helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. So Mary is the one saying this. Now, why is she saying this? Because she believed that God's word was as true 
that day as it had been when God promised to Abraham. God's word was as true as it had ever been. And we can learn something from Mary. If you have a conviction that God's word has eternal authority, you'll never get sucked into the wrong side of cultural issues. Uh, But the moment you fall into the trap of, did God really say, then you'll compromise and you will lose your influence for God. If you're going to be accused of anything, be accused of being faithful to the word of God. Be accused of sticking with the Bible above all else. Uh, The so-called Defense of Marriage Act has now passed through both houses of the U.S. Congress. And the bill should rightly be called the Defense of Perversion Act. Uh, We can predict that very soon, here in the land of the free and the home of the brave, people who stand firmly on the Bible's teaching about marriage and sexuality will be targeted for lawsuits, fines, and eventually imprisonment. No matter the consequences, I am here to tell you, I'm going to keep preaching the God-breathed words of Scripture. Because my convictions don't come from Congress. They come from the principles found in the book. And in the words of the Hebrew children, O king, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And it doesn't matter what the latest form of Nebuchadnezzar's golden image is. Don't bow down to it just to fit in with the culture. Christians, join the chorus of Mary. Be it unto me according to thy word. May God's word reign supreme in our lives. Folks, if we lose our conviction that this is the authority that we live under, then we have no authority. We have none. We don't have a leg to stand on. And and so we've got to go with what God says. Now, I want to go back to Isaiah one more time, to chapter 61. Go to Isaiah 61, and we find this third part, that the anointed one was promised through Holy Spirit power. The anointed one was promised through Holy Spirit power. Look at Isaiah 61 and verse number 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. In about 700 B.C., Isaiah received another prophecy from God regarding the Spirit's work in the life of the Anointed One. And I want to fast forward about 730 years from this prophecy and go to Luke chapter 4. Go back to Luke chapter 4 now. Uh, Jesus had just gone through a 40-day period of fasting and temptation from the devil, uh, where he faced each temptation directly with the ageless word of God. 
Jesus himself modeled that we stand on the word of God against temptation. We don't stand on our own intellect. We don't stand on our own common sense. We don't stand on what the culture says. We stand on the word of God. And that's important because the culture always changes. And what they say is important always changes. But the word of God never changes. Uh, Notice something with me here in Luke 4 and verse number 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified, glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of the sight to the blind, to set it liberally them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Let's understand this together. As Jesus began his earthly ministry, he went in the synagogue, read from this exact passage in Isaiah 61, and declared the passage to be fulfilled. This day is the scripture fulfilled. In other words, I am the anointed one that you've been waiting for. Now, you would think that these devout Jews would be thrilled that the promises were all true, that God with us had finally arrived. Nope. (laughs) They were filled with wrath. It says that they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they tried to kill him, but he escaped through the crowd. Now, why would someone who had known God's promises ever reject Jesus? The same reason why people reject Jesus today. Sin, selfishness, thinking that their way is the right way or the only way, when in fact it is the way to death. It says in Proverbs twice, this same verse, there is a way which seems right unto a man, But the end thereof is the way of death. And every generation of humanity lives with the same choice. Will I choose my way or God's way? Now, Jesus even plainly told us. like He didn't want us to have any doubt or mystery about it. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But many, many people reject Jesus They refuse to make him Lord of their lives. And here's what you find in society. There's a lot of people who are okay with the legend of a baby in a manger. But they're not okay with a Savior who says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Yeah, there's plenty of people who want a ticket to heaven, but they never want Jesus to be Lord of their life. And your ticket to heaven comes with 
the agreement that Jesus is your Savior and Lord. It comes with both. And, and so this is very important for us to understand that Jesus stood up and said, this day, this prophecy is fulfilled. I am the one who's been promised. I am the one who's been led by the Spirit of God and empowered by the Spirit of God. I want to go back to Matthew chapter 1, and let's look at this final portion here this morning. Uh, Promised by the name Jesus, the Savior of the world. He's promised by a certain name, the name Jesus, the Savior of the world. Mary, as we read in Luke 1, had already heard the news from Gabriel. But her espoused husband was living in utter confusion because he had just found out that his fiancée was with child. And he was living in complete disbelief because he knew Mary's reputation was so wholesome. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, I want to start reading there at verse number 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And we find out later that the baby was born, and in verse 25, he called his name Jesus. Joseph woke up from the dream. He took Mary as his wife. What an act of faith on his part. They were most, uh, both most likely disowned by both sides of the family. I mean, think about this. My wife pointed this out to me this week. When they arrived in Bethlehem, uh, supposedly Joseph's hometown, not one single family member opened the door to them. They stayed in the stable outside of an inn. There's no way that Joseph understood everything, but he still believed. And in Luke 2, we find that Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. She was a believer, which brings up an interesting question. Can someone truly believe in God without trusting in Jesus? It's a good question. It's an important question. Clearly, there are a lot of people who claim that they believe in God, and yet they deny that Jesus is God's Son. They deny that Jesus died and rose again. Some even deny that Jesus existed. John, the disciple of Jesus, he wasn't very gentle in addressing this issue in 1 John. Listen to how he said it. He said, who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is anti-Christ that denies the Father and the Son. Whosoever denies the Son, the same has not the Father. Whoa, a strong language from John's spirit-inspired pen. So why is the name of the Son of God so important? 
Well, as Peter told the Sanhedrin in Acts 4, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And to experience God's redemption, you have to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. And in fact, the contract of Scripture says that's what makes you saved. But if you don't know who Jesus is, how can you do that? If you've heard of Jesus, but you deny his deity or his resurrection, there is no path to redemption. And so the angel said, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Redemption is promised in the Scriptures. It's confirmed. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That brings us to today's faith challenge. And I hope you'll put all this together now as we think of, of the ending part of the message. Trusting in Jesus for salvation means trusting in the authority of God's Word. Uh, I hear many modern speakers telling people that you don't have to believe in the whole Bible to be saved. It's okay if there are things you don't believe in the Bible. You just have to believe in Jesus. But let me ask you this. Just answer in your own mind the answer to this question. Who gives you the authority or the right to believe in some parts of Scripture but refuse to believe in other parts of it? I can assure you that God has not given you that right. Could it be that this whole line about believing in Jesus but denying other parts of the Scripture came directly from the original enemy who asked Eve, hath God said? The moment you say that God can be trusted in some things but not others, you are speaking the words of Satan himself. Friends, you can trust the Word of God. And like Joseph, you don't have to understand it all. I know I don't. Joseph didn't, neither did Mary, but they believed. And I can tell you this, Jesus, who predicted his own death and resurrection, and then died and rose again, told us that his Word is absolutely and eternally true. That's good enough for me. And so the question becomes, have you ever given your whole heart to Jesus? Have you asked him to be both your Lord and Savior? And of course, you can do that right now as we close in prayer. Father, thank you that we could come in this morning and be challenged by your word. We know that your word is true, that it endures forever. We know that through Jesus Christ, you have given every person in the world the opportunity to be saved. I pray that you would help us today to commit to you in our beliefs, in our responsibilities, in our actions. Help us to make you Lord and Savior of our lives. And 
If there's anyone here today who's never made you the Lord and Savior, I pray that right now in their heart that they would make that submission, that commitment, that yielding to you under belief that you have died and rose again. We thank you for your goodness and your grace, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.